Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if you're just joining us, we are five weeks into a sermon series here called Liturgy, Why We Do What We Do on Sunday Morning. Uh, To put it really simple, we believe that the Bible tells us how to worship God. And so the liturgy or the shape of our service takes its shape from the gospel itself. The Bible tells us that we are not here to get his attention. Rather, we are here to respond to his initiative, that he has called us in to worship him, and we respond to his call by singing praises to him, by confessing our sins to him. And today we're going to look at the piece of our faith that we call the profession of faith, all right? Now, first, let me answer this question. What is a profession? Of faith. Well, a profession is a statement or a public declaration. Okay, so a profession of faith is the public declaration of what we believe. All right, the public declaration of what we believe. Now, most of the time, when we think of a profession of faith, we're probably thinking of Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10 says this, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified and with the the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So most of the time, when we think of profession of faith, we think when a person, when God has given a person faith to believe in Jesus, and they believe it in their heart, and then out of their mouth, they profess it, right? So we think of a personal profession of faith, right? That's what we most often think about when we think of profession, right? Um, it is important for all of us when God gives us faith to respond and publicly profess our faith. Now listen, this is one of the reasons. So if you baptize your children, um, in the history of our church, basically when my children, we baptized them as babies, and then as they came to faith, they would say, Dad, I want to take the Lord's Supper. And I would walk them through, okay, who is Jesus? What has he done for you? Have you put your faith in him? Yes, of course. They'd look at me like, yeah, 
I've been, how long have you believed? Forever, dad. I'm like, I've never not believed. You know, it's like, I'm like, okay, all right. So I walk them through it and then they can take the Lord's Supper. Well, we, we started talking more as, as elders and we felt like we needed a more formal process for that. For, for uh, some of you, as your children are coming to faith and they have been baptized, that there's actually a liturgy that we do on a, on a Sunday, helps them publicly profess their faith and we accept them into uh, the covenant community and they get to take the Lord's Supper. So that is important, that public profession of faith, right? That first pr- public profession, profession of faith. But I wanna remind you of something. After Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he appeared to his disciples and he told them this in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Okay? This means that Jesus walks up to his disciples and he says, I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. Listen to this. I have all authority in heaven and on earth. You see what Jesus is saying? Heaven and earth. No one's above me. No one, no one outranks me, right? And this is what he says. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Not just, right, how to, the first profession of faith. One of our responsibilities as disciples of Jesus is to know, observe, and teach others everything that Jesus taught in the scriptures. That means we need to know more than John 3.16. We need to know more than the Romans' road of salvation. We need to know and believe and profess all that Jesus taught, right? Right? The Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 4, 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, right? This is how God has made us, that God is a spirit who speaks. Jesus was the word who became flesh. When that word enters us and gives us faith, What's supposed to happen in us is say, I believe it and now I speak it. I profess it to be true. Now I'm gonna say, uh, we've got three more scriptures here in Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The Greek word for confession there is homologia and it means literally to say it out loud. The King James Version translates that profession. So confession and profession are both very similar. They both mean to speak something out loud to one another. However, since confession is usually related to the admission of guilt and sin, we think it more helpful to make the distinction between what we confess, sin, and what we profess, faith. More in Hebrews. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession or profession. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. The prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said of this passage, this exhortation, let us hold fast to our profession might well be written on the cover of every Christian's Bible. 
We live in such a changeful age that we need all to be exhorted, to be rooted and grounded, confirmed and established in the truth. That we are meant to consistently profess what we believe. And that's one of the ways that we hold fast to it. So this morning, as I, as I teach on the profession of faith, it's gonna be a little more teachy than preachy, more than likely. It's gonna, we're probably gonna talk about some things that you've never, never, maybe never thought about, some concepts that you maybe never thought about. And so let's just ask the Holy Spirit to come help us and come open up our minds and come teach us why we profess our faith. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit being here. I thank you for giving us your divine revealed word, that your word is the only way that we can see you with clarity. Of course, we can see you in creation, that you are our, ultimately you are a creator, but we always need the spectacles of the word of God to help, le- help us understand and interpret creation. So this morning, would you speak through your word? Would you uh, think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and none of me? Would your sheep hear your voice? Would you the word of God, would you do work in this room, in the hearts of your people this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so here's what we got. There are at least three reasons why we profess our faith together each Sunday morning. Number one, to renew our covenant with God. Number two, to root ourselves in historic Christian faith. And three, to affirm what we believe and renew our convictions to the truth. Okay, those three reasons, I'm gonna look at each one in turn. Number one, to renew our covenant with God. To renew our covenant with God. Now, here's the idea. God operates and interacts with mankind only through a covenant, Okay? The only way God operates and interacts with humanity is through a covenant. Well, what is a covenant? American theologian Owen Palmer Robertson has called a covenant, quote, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. When God enters into a covenant relationship with men, he sovereignly institute a life and death bond. So it is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. All right, so here's the idea. God, as our creator, created us to live in a covenant relationship with him. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were told you can do whatever you want in the garden. Like, if you obey me, there's tons of blessings. Literally, here's the tree of life, eternal life, eternal blessings. And there's this one tree over here. Just don't eat from this one tree. If you eat from this one tree, you will surely die. Now, what happens here? We all know, if you've read more than the first three chapters of the book of the Bible, we all know this did not go well and Adam and Eve did exactly what they were not supposed to do, right? But the great surprise in those first three chapters is Adam and Eve both rebelled against God, disobeyed God, they ate of what they weren't supposed to eat, and yet they didn't immediately die. That is, that is the surprise, right? Like, think about your creation. Think about when you're a kid and you're drawing something and it doesn't go the way that you wanted it to go. Start over, right? right? Or you're writing something, delete, right? 
That's kind of what you expect. God's creation rebels against him and you expect the fire to shoot out of his eyes and him to burn them up and just Adam and Eve 2.0, right? What's up? You know, just minor, just some minor you know, changes, just a little, little 2.0 version, right? But that's not what happens. Death does enter into the garden in this moment and they do experience other aspects of God's curse. They immediately feel shame. They recognize they're naked all of a sudden and they, they're, they're hiding in the bushes from God. So what happens is their relationship with God gets broken. The relationship between humans gets broken and even the relationship between humans and creation gets broken. And we see death enter but it, into the garden, but it's not their death. What happens is God kills an animal in their place and covers their nakedness with the hide of that animal. So it's still a bond in blood sovereignly administered, but when God required their blood, instead God killed an animal and covered their nakedness with that hide. Now what we learn from this first act of redemptive grace by God is that his covenant with creation is not broken. He doesn't just throw it out because of their disobedience. God's covenant is a covenant of grace. However, it is still a bond of blood sovereignly administered. God required blood to be shed for their sin. Why? To show how seriousness our sin against God is and ultimately to point towards the great work that Jesus would do on the cross as he became, thousands of years later, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So those animals never had redemptive power in their blood. The only power of redemption is found in the blood of Christ, but those lambs and those sacrifices pointed forward to the work of Jesus Christ. But this is what we need to see. God has not changed. God is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still only relates to mankind through the terms of his covenant, his bond of blood sovereignly administered. Now, what are the terms of his covenant? The same thing that we saw in the garden there are promised blessings for obedience and promised curses for disobedience. I want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28, very famous passage of scripture. We're going to look at verses one through six first. Look at these blessings for obedience. God says this, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Praise God, right? Lots of blessings, for obedience. But look at verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, 
then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. Pretty simple rules, right? Obey God, blessings. Disobey God, cursings. Now, hopefully you're beginning to sense a little bit of a problem. Hopefully you're even feeling a little concerned right now. If you are at all aware of the deep workings of your own heart, if you are even mildly sensitive to your attitudes and your desires, if you're... (laughs) just kind of conscious of your actions, you will see that every single day, let me give you the benefit of the doubt, at least every week, we disobey the Lord in some way. We are not very careful to obey his words and therefore we, like Adam and Eve and like the people of Israel, are rightly deserving of God's curse upon us for disobeying him. This is his world, and he set it up this way. When you obey him, the creator, he blesses, and when you disobey the creator, he curses. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. This has not changed. Now, why do I bring this up? Because if you don't understand that, then you won't understand who Jesus is and what Jesus came to solve. That dilemma is the great dilemma that Jesus Christ came to solve, that Jesus is both man and Jesus is God, that Jesus is perfect, Jesus is holy, and Jesus put on flesh to stand in in the gap for us to take our place. The author of Hebrews says it this way in chapters 9, verse 15. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, listen, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Here, those who are called may get the blessings. Listen, how? Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay, here's the idea. We all stand condemned before God. We are under the curse of God because of our sins, right? We're not un- we don't get the blessings, we're under the curses, but we all want the blessings. So what happens? Jesus puts on flesh and lives a perfect life earning all of those blessings, right? They come from God. He's the only one that obeyed the covenant perfectly, but then Jesus dies in our place. So the curse that we deserve, Jesus takes. And now Jesus gives us an eternal inheritance. What does that mean? When your father dies or your grandfather dies or grandmother or grandfather, they can offer you an inheritance. Upon their death, that now becomes yours. Here's what 
The gospel is for us. We get forgiven of our sins, yes, but Jesus also leaves us an eternal inheritance upon his death. And that eternal inheritance is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, its entrance into heaven, its entrance into the new heavens and new earth. All of this brought to us by Jesus Christ, not through our own obedience. So here's the idea. The curse of God is hanging over our heads for our disobedience to God. We are guilty and we have been given a death sentence, but Jesus has taken our place and died for us. Hebrews 8, 26 through 28 says it this way. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So Jesus Christ has purchased our righteousness, has purchased our eternal inheritance, and the next time he shows up, he's ushering us into the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Jesus has done for us. Do we get that? So here's what that means for us. There are only two types of people in this room this morning. Those who stand condemned under the law of God for breaking his covenant and those who stand condemned under the law of God for breaking his covenant, but Jesus was condemned in their place and now they are forgiven and given the righteousness of God. That's it. So what are we doing when we come in and we're professing our faith each week? We are renewing our covenant with God. See, those of us who are Christians, we have walked away from God this past week. We have not trusted him in all things. We have not obeyed him in all things. We have broken our side of the covenant. And he has kept his side of the covenant. He has still been faithful to us. He has never left us. He has never forsaken us. But we are like an, like an unfaithful spouse. Think of it in terms like that. You make a covenant, husband and wife, you come together. We even see this in the Old Testament. A prophet has, has marries, a prophet marries a prostitute and she's constantly cheating on him. And the illustration that that's meant to, that is meant to be, that's what God's people do to God. God is faithful and they're out sleeping with other people all the time. That's the reality of what our sin is. Our sin isn't just a, a little hand in the cookie jar. No, our, our sin is rebellion against God. Our sin is adultery against the lover of our soul, Christ, who we are married to. That's what our sin actually is. And so what we've done during the week is we've broken covenant with God. God has remained faithful to us. So when we come into the gathering, he calls us back in. Think about that. He calls back in his adulterous people. Come here, baby, come here. I know what you've been doing all week long. Come on, right here. Now I'm gonna give you grace. I'm gonna allow you to confess your sins. I'm gonna absolve you of your sin once again. I know, I know, I know. I died for that sin. I've forgiven you of that sin. And then what do we do when we confess our sin and we, remind, we get reminded of we've been forgiven? What do we do? 
We profess our faith in him. We renew our covenant with God. We say, God, I believe your word to be true once again, and I want to leave here living like it. That's what we do. So Sunday morning, the profession of faith is about covenant renewal. The second reason we profess our faith each week is to root ourselves in historic Christian faith. Listen, one of the fastest ways to create a cult is to try to think new thoughts about God. Our faith is a historic faith. It's rooted in the realities of history. It's been passed down for us from generation to generation to generation. We want to come in here and to think old and accurate thoughts about God. I, when I came to faith, it was kind of popular to like say things like, this isn't your grandma's church. And I'd be like, yeah, this isn't my grandma's church. Right? Now, I get what they were trying to do. What they were trying to do is what's called contextualize the gospel. Contextualizing is different than capitulating to culture. Here's what contextualizing is. Contextualizing is saying old things about God in a new way. Saying good theology, good historic creeds and accurate what the Bible teaches in, in modern day vernacular, the way that people can understand it today, okay? Capitulating to culture is allowing culture to change what you believe and what you say about the faith, about Christianity. See, so when we come in today, every week, we want to profess the truth about God. What does that mean? We're going to profess scripture. We're going to profess historic Christian creeds like the Apostles' Creed. And what we profess today was called the Nicene Creed. Now, the Nicene Creed that we profess today, the Christian church has been professing that for 1,800 years. See, we are not inventing anything new here. Cults invent new things. We are a, a historic Christian church that teaches the same gospel the apostles believed, the same gospel that Jesus preached. That's what we want to do when we come in here on Sunday morning. Now, this is antithetical to our culture. One of the great errors of liberal progressivism and the modern church and the postmodern church is believing that we need to update the Bible. We need to update what we believe. We need to update the scriptures and update Christianity to fit in with modern or postmodern sensibilities or modern or postmodern political expressions. They want to make Christianity smell better to the society we live in today or feel a little less offensive and fit nicely into the current cultural climate. And what usually happens when you do that is you just become worldly. Your current worldview tries to shape a Jesus into its image and all you wind up with is a false Jesus, a Jesus of your own making.
One of the ways this is happening today, it's happening in all kinds of ways, but one of the ways it's happening today is Christians' capitulation to the state or government. Jesus was very clear that the state or Caesar or nation is not God. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus said, not Caesar, not Pilate. The the government is not God and does not have ultimate rights over their citizens. Now listen, all kind of worldviews teach this. Socialism teaches this. Statism teaches this. We could get into all kind of different things. They believe that the state is ultimate. The government is ultimate. Jesus said, absolutely not. In a society where Caesar was literally like, here's what I want you to say. Caesar is Lord. Not a big deal, Christians. Just say Caesar is Lord and then I'll let you worship however you want to worship. Just say Caesar is Lord. They had a huge problem with this. Why? Because that is antithetical to Jesus' claim to be Lord. You can't say Jesus is Lord and Caesar is Lord. No, no, no. Jesus is Lord, so we're not saying that to you, Caesar. We're going to disobey you, Caesar. Now, Jesus taught this in several different places. One, when he was asked, hey, do you, is it lawful for you to pay taxes? He said, show me the Roman coin. They gave him the Roman coin. He said, whose image is on this coin? They said, Caesar's. He said, so give to Caesar's that which is Caesar's and give to God's that which is God's or give to God that which is God's. Now, people just don't understand what Jesus is doing here. And all they focus on is give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, right? They don't follow through with and give to God that which is God's. Now, what's he saying? A part of it's obvious. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. He says, give this Roman coin back to Caesar to pay your taxes. It's got Caesar's image on it. Give it back to him to pay your taxes. But most people miss the other side of this statement. He says, give to God that which is God's. Well, first off, we should say here, let's just do this two things. One, what has God's image stamped on it? We do. We are made in the image of God, right? So the first question, the first thing we should see here is he say, give back to God's what is God's. Give yourself to God. Give your body to God. Give your soul to God. God has ultimate rights over you, not Caesar, right? But then answer this question. What else does God own? (laughs) Everything else. So this is kind of like, yeah, it's got Caesar's face on, but where did that come from? right? What mineral did that come from? Who gave that? That's God's. God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Yeah, the the farmers say, this is my land and these are my cattle and God kind of chuckles, right? He's like, I had them before you were here and I'm going to have them after you're gone, right? So even Caesar's coins belong to God as well. And so if Caesar were to demand 90% taxes, God would say, no, resist Caesar. He doesn't get all of that. That's mine too. And God shows us in the Old Testament, 
I'm not gonna get into it all, but the tithe and different things, they were giving about 30% of their money back to God to, to take care of the poor and to do all these different things. So Caesar, by this principle, does not have ultimate rights over your money or over your body. Now, what is the principle that Jesus is teaching? Well, what we call this principle is limited government. Limited government. The state does not have jurisdiction over all aspects of our lives. God does. And anytime the state asks us or government to do something that violates what God has told us to do or violates our conscience, we must, as Christians, resist. You see this in the Old Testament with Gideon. He's threshing wheat in, in, a, in a wine press. He doesn't want the, the, the government overreach, the people that are taking cities. He doesn't want them to find out, so he's hiding his production and he's hiding it. You see it with Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. The government came in and told Daniel, here's your new diet that you have to eat. Daniel's like, nope. You're not gonna institute a new diet for me. God's told me what I need to eat, what I need to drink. I'm gonna worship God. Oh, you wanna tell me when I can pray and what I can do? Nope, I'm not gonna disobey you there too. Daniel disobeys. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they all disobey. All of this is blessed by God. Rahab, the, Rahab, the prostitute, lies to protect Joshua's men who were spying on the land. This is literally um, uh, cap, capital, I mean, it could be, she could be killed for doing this. You even see it when Jesus, at his trial, standing before Pilate, refuses to answer Pilate. Pilate says to him, you're not gonna speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you right now and I have the authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Jesus does not answer Pilate. You also see this in the book of Acts when Paul and Peter get arrested and told to stop preaching the gospel. Why? The gospel was upsetting society. You see this in Ephesus specifically. They had um, an idol-making industry, okay? The goddess Artemis, the temple of Artemis, was in Ephesus. And one of the chief manufacturing operations in the city was making these little idols in the shape of the goddess of Artemis or in the shape, in the shape of the temple, right? Think of it, you go to Paris and you get little Eiffel Towers. There's lots of people that make money off of those little Eiffel Towers, right? When Paul starts preaching the gospel, the city goes up in an uproar and all the manufacturer of all these goods are like, this guy's messing with our income, and a riot, take, a riot erupts and they want to kill him, right? So Peter and Paul, for doing things like this, they get thrown in prison, right? God gets them out. Then the, this is what the government says. Hey, hey, all right, fine. We're gonna release you. Just stop preaching the gospel. You're upsetting people. Peter's like, okay, cool. Thanks for letting us out. And he starts preaching the gospel as soon as he gets out. He says, we have to obey God and not man. That's what he says. Direct, dire going directly against governmental orders. What has happened today is that too many people 
have gotten used to giving up huge pieces of their life and liberty to the state. And this has created a totally different religion. The state is now God. So here's the problem. As a state or nation pushes away from God, rebels from God, says, we don't want anything to do with you. God hands them over to to that lifestyle. Okay, and here's what happens. As a country secularizes, okay, we don't believe in God. We wanna do what we gotta do. Well, guess what? That, That country gets more and more immoral. And guess what an immoral country needs? More and more laws, more and more government control, outside control. See, religion controls you from the inside. It gives you a new heart with the law of God written on your heart where you love God and you love your neighbor. And so you don't need as many external laws. You have maximum freedom in Christianity. But when the state becomes God, you need more and more rules to control every aspect of a person's relationship, every aspect of a person's life. And ultimately what happens is the state becomes God. The state is their provider that gives them food. The state becomes their discipler who educates them. The state becomes their healer who provides health care. The state becomes their security that provides them retirement. And here's what ultimately happens in that system. If you cannot live your life without, without being dependent upon the state, then they can ask whatever they want of you and you will comply. Socialism and statism are not congruent with Christianity. The third reason we profess our faith each week is to affirm what we believe and renew our convictions in the truth. The profession is both teaching us what to believe and also reminding us week in and week out what we've forgotten and what we need to believe to help us live our life in line with God's truth during the week. I want us to look at our text that I chose this morning, Psalm 46. And Psalm 46 is basically a song of profession. It's a profession of faith. And it would, be, it would have been sung. And sometimes we sing professions of faith as well. Now, it's interesting because this psalm professes faith, listen, in the rule of God over one sphere after another. First, they profess faith of God's power over nature. Then they profess faith of God's power over the attackers of his city. And then they profess faith over God's power over the whole warring world. And what we're gonna see here is this profession of faith was spoken in the midst of great animosity, in the, great, in the, great, in the midst of great trouble. And this is an important part, part that I need to talk about. One of the pushbacks we constantly get when we talk about liturgy is often something like this. I don't like it because it's not authentic. It's just reading something someone else wrote off the screens. 
Now this is a totally modern idea and it's really based on my feelings are ultimate reality. The idea that in order for me to say something and really believe it, I need to, it needs to kind of just come up from the depths of me. It needs to be authentic and original. Maybe because we believe we're unique snowflakes. I don't know, but it could be. Right? But if anything to be true and for me to really believe it, it's just got to be completely original with me. Now listen, this is going to be a little tough for us to hear this morning. God wants us to believe and profess the truth as it is revealed in Scripture. He doesn't really care about how we are feeling. Our feelings can be way off. Just look at our text. And this is, the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the, the vision I want you to see. And this is, since we have a, this modern example, this is the best one. Imagine you are a Christian and you are in Kabul, Afghanistan. And America has just taken the last plane and has just left you to your own devices. And the Taliban are right, side, right outside the city gates. Okay? Now let's read this text. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now think about this. That They're speaking that not out of their emotion. They feel the exact opposite. America said they were going to save us. They said they were going to fix this. They said they were going to heal us. They said they, were gonna, they said they wouldn't leave us. And look, there they go. Right? I can't put my hope in them. What, where must my hope be? God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Even though my circumstances look bleak, I will not fear. See, I don't wait to profess faith until I feel it. I profess it and hope that my feelings will catch up to my profession. We profess God's word. We profess what scriptures reveal to us to be true. And then we say to our soul, be encouraged, be brave, believe it right now when you need it. God is our refuge and strength, not the government. God is our present help in trouble, not the state. Or we say to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. C.S. Lewis describes this principle in mere Christianity when he says this, <clears throat> do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. <clears throat> Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come 
to love them. See, what's more loving, to wait around until I feel loving, to actually do something loving, or actually just, I'm gonna do the loving thing no matter how I feel, right? That's the more loving thing to do, to act loving towards a person no matter how I feel. This is one of my great problems with people today wanting to write their own vows. They want their vows to come out of their heart. The problem is your heart is very shallow most of the time. And I've had, I mean, you're, you're 19, 20, 25, 30, however old you are, and you're so in love. Your feelings are just so feely, right? And you just want to just express those feelings. And people sit across from me, and I say, well, well here's the historic Christian confession like, that we're going to say um, in sickness and in health, right? Richer or poorer till death do us part. We're saying no matter what comes in this life and we expect trouble, I'm going to be there. When we write our own vows, real vows that I've gotten before, I promise to make dump dessert for you whenever you want. I promise to root for the Cubs with you. I prom. this is not a joke. And I've looked and I've said, I can't say that. I, I can't say that. I won't do that. I'm sorry. We're, we're not doing that. This is how you feel. I get it. This is really shallow. What we're really going to do is we're going to profess our faith and we're going to say richer or poorer, right? Sickness and in health till death do us part. God helping us. Right? What is the more loving thing to do? A guy who sticks by his wife's side when she has cancer, even though she can give nothing to him at the end of her life, right? Is that more loving? Or is it the guy who's just like, oh, my feelings, I just, we fell out of love. Sorry, honey, I'm gonna go ch chase my feelings some more. Right? What's more loving? This is more loving. You only get this if you have convictions to the truth, to the word of God, that are more powerful than your feelings. You're never going to feel like loving someone when you really need to love someone. Kick back on the lazy boy, you're like eight minutes from sleep, and your kid asks you some, come read a story to me. Well, you are not feeling it in this moment. The most loving thing to do is get out of that chair and go read the book, right? Or your wife looks at over at you, you're falling asleep. I really get you some ice cream right about now. Well, you should pray about that then, because, <laughs> right? No, you should pray about it, because just get out of that lazy boy and go get her some, right? That's the most loving thing to do. Listen, some Sundays, maybe most Sundays, 52 Sundays a year, over the course of your life, you come in here not feeling it. You aren't feeling full of faith and full of love and full of devotion to the Lord. Well, it's those Sundays that you really need the profession of faith. That's where you are operating out of faith and not operating out of sight or operating out of feeling. You need to say, I believe this to be true because I believe God to be true and every man a liar, including myself, including my own emotions. I believe it 
And so I speak it even when I don't feel it. And Lord, I'm asking you to get my heart and my emotions and my will in line with my profession. The psalmist goes on. He says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The whole, okay, this is, what, this is what he's doing right here. The greatest problems in our life result from sin. We've disobeyed God, we've pushed away from God, and God has handed us over to our own sinful, sinfulness. That's what Romans 1, the wrath of God, now looks like, oh, okay, you wanna do that your way? Okay, go do it your way, right? And he hands us over and, and allows us to, to reap what we sow. Well, the reality is the nations of the world are doing that, right? Most of the nations of the world are not submitting themselves to Jesus Christ. And so there's wars and there's all kinds of stuff going on that's terrible across the world. But God here promises to fix it, all right? And so look, let's, read, let's keep reading here. Listen to what he says. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. This is pointing forward to the new heavens and the new earth where the stream will be coming down the new Jerusalem, right? And all wars will cease because Jesus Christ has conquered all of his enemies. Keep going. God is in the midst of her. Oh, that's what makes heaven heaven. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. <clears throat> the kingdoms totter. And he utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. Oh my goodness. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Can I just tell you? there are a lot of people prophesying bad things. Whether it's pre-tribulation understandings of the book of Revelation that think that the world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Or it's environment, apocalyptic environmentalists that are literally saying today that human beings are cockroaches on the planet and we're destroying the planet and we should all stop having children because there should be less humans on the planet and we're all just doomed for destruction, okay? That's not what scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that he, listen, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth, right? We're 2,000 years after the resurrection of Jesus, right? And guess what? There's a whole lot more people worshiping Jesus today than there was 2,000 years ago. Whole lot more. I don't see this thing here. Like, like Jesus is just waiting for us to, to destroy everything. He's waiting back. He's like, it ain't bad enough yet. Ain't bad enough. Ain't bad enough yet. Hold on. When it gets real bad, I'm gonna jump in there. I don't see Jesus doing that. I see Jesus waiting for us to keep preaching the gospel and taking the gospel around the world and all nations start worshiping the one true living God, that's Jesus Christ. And then the kingdom of man becomes the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ comes back. That makes more sense to me. Yeah. 
He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. See, here's the problem. We want to build a society separate from God, and God hands us over. The world says, trust in the collective powers of man represented in the state or government. They can redeem you. They can give you everything you want. They can usher in utopia without a savior. And the scriptures tell us that is a false gospel and a false narrative, and it's a lie. Can never do it. Every state that has promised to usher in that utopia has created a dystopia. But God so loved the world, the world, the planet, everything in it, his creation, that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. And listen, God, we know this, God isn't just zapping believers off this planet into heaven when they die. God loves the world and he is redeeming the world. He is going to be exalted among the nations and all the earth. This is the one thing you should read about this book. He wins. He wins. America doesn't win. Russia doesn't win. China doesn't win. Secularism doesn't win. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He wins. That's where we're headed. And so every Sunday, we come in and we have the audacity to profess that into a culture that says we're crazy. Profess that in a culture that says we're backwards, that we need to get up to speed, that we're on the wrong side of history. We have the audacity to resist the pull of the culture and say, we're not updating Christianity. We're not changing what we believe because you've changed your morals and you've changed your understanding of human personhood. Jesus Christ has showed us what we believe and we profess loudly and boldly what we believe week in and week out. Amen, let me pray. Father, I thank you for your grace. First off, just the, the mercy and the kindness that you had to just to enter into to humanity, to save us from our sins, and also to give us your word that we can read it and we can know what's real and what's true, that it cuts through all the baloney that our culture tries to give us. Father, you know what love is because you are love. You know what truth is because you are the source of all truth. You know what is right because you're always right. You know where we're going because you're already there in eternity. Father, would you give us the faith to believe the words that you've given us in your scripture? Help us profess it and believe it. Even right now, I pray that you would give people faith to believe, that they'd find faith growing in their heart, faith bubbling up in their heart, and that faith would help them hold the profession of their faith all week long this week until you call us back into worship next Sunday morning. And as we come to your table this morning, we come professing that we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe he lived a perfect life. We believe he died a substitutionary death. We believe his body is bread. We believe his blood is the cup, is, represents the cup of the new covenant. We believe we are in God. We are saved by God 
only because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so even though we're not perfect and we're not holy, we come to your table and we eat in fellowship with you through the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So would you feed our souls this morning? In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.